0: Ki Mitziyon Torah This is KMTT and this is Ezra Beck and today is Erev Shabbat Shabbat Kodesh Parshat Emo Yud Ve'iyar Today is Pesach Sheni There is a minhag to try to eat matzah on Pesach Sheni Zecher Lavoteinu Remembrance of our forefathers who those who did not bring the korban Pesach on Pesach Rishon on yud Dalid Nisan they were able to bring it on Yud-Dalid Allah Halach the only thing that's special about Pesach Sheini is that we don't say tachlon, But there is this minute of eating matzah. Uh, it's not easy on a Friday to remember to do it since our main meal will be on Shabbat or it will be tomorrow. Truth is, every year on Pesach Sheni, I save a matzah from Pesach, intending to eat it, shmur matzah. I think nineteen out of twenty of the last years I've forgotten. I still have a few minutes to try to remember, to try to remember today. There's also a special day coming up. This year matches. In its days, the year of Yitziat Mitzrayim. The Pasuk says that Pnei Yisrael came to Midbar Tzin, Pasuk and B'Shalach. They came to Midbar Tzin on the 15th day of the second month. The 15th day of Iyar. And then they had no food to eat. Rashi explains the food they brought with them from Mitzrayim finished. and They complained and the man began to fall the next day. In other words, Sunday, Ted Zayin ya, the day the man began, the Gemara in Shabbat, Taf Pechet explains that that year it was actually a Sunday. Was that year they reached midbat Sin on Shabbos, and the Sunday of Tad Zayin B'iyah, just like this year, Sunday was the day that the man began to fall. The Gemara in B'chot says that Moshe Rabbeinu was Mithakain, he enacted Berkat Hazan, the first Bracha of Berkat Amazon was written by Moshe Rabbeinu that they should bench, that they should make a bracha after eating eating man. So, this Shabbat is the beginning. Sunday is actually the day when the man begins to fall and Bukat Hazan, Hazan at Olam first bracha of Hamazon, uh, was recited, Mi Takanat Moshe Rabbeinu. There's an interesting question asked by Yosef Engel. He says, "How could you possibly bench on man? Benching bekatamazon is said only on Shivataminim. It's not said even on all Shivataminim. It's said on Shivataminim and then you also need that it should be mezbia. It should give you. It should give you sustenance, and it should make you feel full. In the end, we only make it on grains, but only those grains which are mentioned in the pasuk of Shivataminim. Eretz Chita u-sora u'Sorah ve'Gefen u'Tina rimon Eretz u u'Dvash.'" But the man is not one of the peirot shenishta pchu eretz israel. It's not one of the crops of eretz israel, the seven fruits, the seven produces which eretz israel is 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 uh, exemplified. So, how do you make Amazon on man? That's a Yosef Engel's question. So one one answer, rather simple technical answer, is that the gemaran b'chad says was Hazan. The question is, why was he metakein? Why did he make an enactment? It's the writer. It's minat So, the Madanei Yom Tov in Vachot explains that the obligation minat to say, v'kat is found in Sefer Dvarim. And it's found in Sefer Dvarim after already the occurrences which took place in the end of Sefer B'midbar took place, namely, the war of Sichon Vaog and the capture of the territory which is, in fact, east, east of the Yadayim, but the territory of Sichon and Og, which later on became the territory of the two and a half shatim, Ruvayn Gad Vechatsi Shibet Menashe. So the Madenei Yon-tub claims that the Chiyah Vabrikat Hamazon Menat is connected to Eretz Yisrael. As we see, it says, Uvei Rakhda Hashem Elokecha Al haaretz Hatova the Bracha is for the land which he has given you when you eat, which is why you, you only make Bekatamazon on those things which are exemplified as growing in Eretz Israel. So he says the Chiv, the, the, this, this obligation, only began after they began to capture Eretz Israel, as found in the fact that the pasuk is found in Sefer Dvarim, in Pashat, in Pashat Akef. Moshe Rabbeinu made a Takana, made a rabbinic enactment. On the authority of Moshe Rabbeinu, that they should say one bracha bekat hazan after man. So that's a tactical answer. I and mean, it was bekat on man is different than bekat on shabbat aminim. It's the same bracha, but it has a different kind of obligation. But there's another answer, somewhat more complicated and and, and interesting answer of the Chetam Sofer. The Chetam Sofer says that man wasn't a regular miracle. It wasn't just something new came down and called man. He says the man is the pnimiut. It's the inner spiritual essence. Which blesses the crops of Eretz Yisrael. What happened in the midbar, in the desert, was that God, there was no physical food, but God showered on the Jews the spiritual essence which blesses the peirot, the produce of Eretz Yisrael. He claims, in, in an extension of this drasha, that because of that, the perot in Eretz Yisrael that did grow at that time were lacking the spiritual essence. It was mere external, superficial true fruit, which is why the emori, the Knani, the nations in Eretz Israel and Eretz Canaan, which were eating that, that fruit, they were missing this, the normal spiritual sustenance which had sustained them when they lived in Eretz Israel. They were missing out on the benefits of basically living in Eretz Yisrael, which is why later on it's said about them uh, that they are our bread. Ki lachmeinu <laughs> Kalev says we can easily conquer them because they're just a, a shell. They're missing the spiritual essence. We ate for the last 40 years. We've been eating the spiritual essence which should have been sustaining them. They have, they're have lacking that substance. Therefore they'll be easy to conquer. But in any event, forgetting about that point, the says that man is is the true essence of perot Eretz Israel, so therefore, you can make Amazon on the man because it is shivat haminim Shinid Bachab Eretz Israel. Man is the, in a sense, in its spiritual essence, has the the quality of perot Eretz Israel. I think what he means is that, on the contrary, the reason why Eretz Israel you say bekatamazon is because they have that spiritual essence. So the man is the is the essential quality which, in fact, allows Amazon to be said uh, on any because Eretz Israel is different why is it different why the perot, Eretz Israel, the special fruits of Eretz Israel? why are they different than all other fruits and produce in the world because they have this special bracha from God, the bracha which is found uh, inherently in, in the man in any event there is a minute mentioned in some, uh, in some commentators to make a special effort uh, on this Shabbat I think it should be on Sunday actually on Shabbat and on Sunday in Bekat HaMazon, specifically in Bekat Hazan, in memory of Moshe Rabbeinu, who enacted the beginning of Bekat the first Bekat was said on on this date. It's actually the date is actually Sunday, Tetzain Tetzain B'iyah, but the date mentioned in the Torah when it all began, the Pasha begins, is uh, that they came to Midbar Tzin on Tetzvav which is Shabbat and they complained because there was no longer any food left from the stores that they had taken out of Mitzrayim. Our guest today for this Erev Shabbat program is Harav Rani Ziegler, who has a number of times in the past, we've had a series of uh, little talks about the books of the Tavad Foundation, and Rav Zigla will speak to us one more time about a different book, one of the books published recently, by Harav Soloveitchik the books published by the Tavat Tavavah Foundation. Harav
1: Today I'd like to speak about a book that's very different than all the other books of Rav Soloveitchik that we've put out. Um, the book is called Community, Covenant, and Commitment Selected Letters and Communications. This is a unique genre. All the rest of the works of the Rav that are coming out are more philosophical, ideological, halachic. This book is letters which place him within his historical context and show him as a human being. For example, uh, if you would look at the difference between the Rambam's letters and the Rambam's philosophical writings, the difference is as stark as night and day. In his philosophical writings, if you would not know who wrote the Mornevuchim, And you would read the book, you would learn his positions on a very large number of philosophical issues, prophecy, providence, creation, but you wouldn't know anything about where he lived, when he lived, what public issues he faced, whether he had a family, what he did for a living. None of that would be evident from his philosophical writings, but when you start reading the Rambam's letters, you see him as a historical figure, as a three-dimensional human being, you see uh, the public issues that he had to contend with. You see him giving uh, you know, warmth and support to his students. You see his scorn for some of his opponents. Uh, you see a well-rounded human being. Uh, with Rav Soloveitchik, in his philosophical writings, you do get more of a sense of the person than you would from the Rambam. But it is truly in the letters that you see him as a person situated in 20th century America, dealing with certain issues, confronting various people and uh, the issues that are unique and specific to his time. And you see him dealing with them with warmth, with sensitivity, with caring, with nuance, as one would expect. Although the nature of a collection of letters is that it deals with many different themes, I would say that there is a unifying theme to maybe 80% of the letters and that is the theme of the necessity of preserving the autonomy of halacha and of Judaism. This is a theme that comes up in most of his works in one form or another, and in this book we see its practical ramifications, not its theoretical grounding. Uh, in terms of his other works, uh, Halachic Man and Madodech Midod, which is his eulogy for his uncle Reb Uh, Those works deal with the autonomy of the halachic system. Rosaloveitchik asserts in them that halacha has its own way of looking at the world. It constitutes an independent cognitive realm, and it must be studied and applied according to the tenets of its own internal logic, not according to the foreign categories of historical, economic, or sociological causation. Halacha possesses its own methodological integrity, and therefore it has no need to justify itself before people who challenge it based on foreign assumptions. Uh, In the Rav's work, The Halachic Mind, he establishes a philosophical basis for his assertion of the cognitive and methodological autonomy of halacha. In The Lonely Man of Faith, the Rav deals with the human side of this dimension, not the philosophical side, but the experience of the autonomy of halacha. He asserts there that there are really two conflicting impulses in man, uh, which he terms majestic man and covenantal man. Majestic man seeks to conquer the world and to subdue it. Covenantal man seeks to submit himself to God and to enter into relationship. And the problem is that modern man uh, follows the line of majestic man and ignores covenantal man. What this means is not that modern man is agnostic or atheistic. Rather, modern man has subdued religion, which is the realm of covenantal man, he has subdued religion itself to the desires and the tendencies of majestic man. Let me read uh, a passage from Lonely Man of Faith, and this will lead directly into our discussion of, of the Ruv's letters. He writes about modern man, that he of course comes to a place of worship, he attends lectures on religion, and he appreciates the ceremonial, yet he is searching not for a faith in all its singularity and otherness, or I would add in brackets, in terms that we've been ta- discussing till now in its own autonomy. Uh, Now back to the quote. Yet, modern man is searching for religious culture. He seeks not the greatness found in sacrificial action, but the convenience that one discovers in a comfortable, serene state of mind. He is desirous of an aesthetic experience rather than a covenantal one, of a social ethos rather than a divine imperative. In a word, he wants to find in faith what he cannot find in his laboratory or in the privacy of his luxurious home. His efforts are noble, yet he is not ready for a genuine faith experience, which requires the giving of oneself unreservedly to God, who demands unconditional commitment, sacrificial action, and retreat. Western man diabolically insists on being successful. Alas, he wants to be successful even in his adventure with God. If he gives of himself to God, he expects reciprocity. Now I'm skipping a little, and here's the key line. Therefore, modern man puts up demands that faith adapt itself to the mood and temper of modern times. It is precisely this demand that faith adapt its? That's the end of the quote. It is this demand that faith adapt itself to the mood and temper of modern times, namely the mood and temper of majestic man. It is this demand that most threatens the independence and the legitimacy of covenantal man's religion. As a leader of Orthodox Judaism. The Rav was very sensitive to this threat and on a number of fronts he directed practical efforts at countering it. A unifying theme of many of the halachic decisions contained in this book and many of the public activities that he advocated is the need to preserve Judaism's autonomous position and halacha's position in the face of external pressures for accommodation to modernity, watering it down, foregoing the singular approach of Judaism. Let's now examine a number of instances, a number of the letters in the book, uh, which we can divide into several different categories. First, in terms of ritual change. The Rav took very strong public stands against changes in synagogue practice. The integrity of halacha, he thought, was not a matter subject to public approval. In mid-20th century America, Orthodox Judaism was perceived as being under retreat. And the Rav's resolute but sensitive stand on, on issues, primarily that of the mechitza, Uh, helped turn the tide in the favor of Orthodox Judaism. When the Rav fought the battle for the preservation of synagogue practice that had been hallowed by generations, uh, he didn't just say, this is the way we do it, end of discussion. Rather, he presented explanations that could, could appeal, could be understood by modern man. This, I think, is a major contribution of the Rav and and of this book in particular, that he's not just saying that the way we do it is the way we do it. Rather, he gives very, very compelling reasons analyzing the sources of Jewish law and uncovering the ideas that lie behind them, which dictate that the synagogue service, for example, has to be conducted in a certain manner. Uh, For example, uh, let's talk not about the Mechitz, another innovation. Uh, people wanted to make the synagogue service more pleasing, more acceptable. Yet they didn't understand the Jewish philosophy of prayer as as derived from the sources of halacha. So one of these changes that people wanted to make was to have the cantor face the congregation during prayer instead of facing the ark. The Rav wrote that this departure corrupts the very idea of prayer, which calls for complete forgetfulness of man as a worthless and wretched being on the one hand and unqualified surrender to God on the other watching the audience during the recital of prayers by the cantor is tantamount to a demonstration of the opposite sort. It is arrogance and haughtiness on the part of the congregation and its representative in giving preference to a social get-together over man's encounter with God. Therefore, the Rav said, that when dealing with the halakhic realm, one had to be guided by Halakha's internal logic and values and not by external considerations. Uh, another area that the Rav uh, was very concerned with was the propriety of creating new rituals. Each ritual, he said, had its own internal logic, and one couldn't tamper with it or insert other things to, into it unless they were consonant with the internal logic of the ceremony. For example, um, the seder was the most widely uh, was the most widely followed ritual among the Jewish community, and it still is. So people thought, if people already gather together at the seder, let's commemorate the Holocaust at the seder. The Rav felt that the Seder has its structure. It's about the emergence from slavery to freedom. And to insert mention of the Holocaust there made no sense. One should mark the Holocaust on other occasions that are appropriate to it. Tisha B'Av, Asara fast days, but not in the middle of the Pesach Seder. It just didn't make sense according to the structure and meaning of the Seder. In one of the letters, which I think is uh, very interesting, there was a proposal a uh, little more than 50 years ago to mark the 300th anniversary of the settlement of Jews in America by having a special service conducted in synagogues across the country on a certain Shabbat. Uh, this was in 1954. And the Synagogue Council of America, which was an umbrella group for, uh, for synagogues of different denominations, sent out Uh, pamphlets to all the congregation, saying this is the service that we should do. The Rav was asked whether the shuls of the Rabbinical Council of America, which was an Orthodox organization, should follow this. And the Rav had very harsh words about this newfangled ceremony. He said, uh, for example, the following, The whole service conducted by some rabbi of the synagogue council should not and cannot be accepted by the RCA. The service suggests to me both religious infantilism and Christian Methodist sentimentalism, which exhausts itself in hymn singing and responsive reading. As a matter of fact, an order of service by the Methodist church is by far superior to the approach employed by the synagogue council. I am not as much disturbed by the problem you raised as by the whole character and structure of the service, which contains very few Jewish themes and a lot of high school commencement nonsense. Another uh, similar proposal was a proposal sent out by the religious Zionist group, the Mizrahi, to shuls in America and in the diaspora uh, on a, an order of prayer to be instituted on Israel's independence Day Yom Haatzmaut, And the Rav was asked about it. And he felt that there were two reasons why this contravened his principle of the autonomy of halacha. First, lay groups can't dictate to rabbinic groups. And second the the suggested proposal, the proposal itself, was not in consonance with halacha. Here's part of the Rav's answer. He says, I do not feel that the RCA ought to mail out to its members the program prepared by the Mizrahi. My feelings on this matter were prompted by a twofold reason. First, the order of service was arranged in a non-halakhic and non-scholarly fashion and breathes meaningless ceremonialism which is not only alien but also contrary to our halachic tradition. Uh, I'll just add that he particularly objected to the recital of halal at night on Yom Atzma'ut, wh- while the Gemara says that Hallel can never be recited at night, with the one exception of Pesach night. Um, so the Rav goes through the various halachic reasons why this is unacceptable. Then he continues, second... I do not believe that a rabbinical body like the RCA should disseminate any kind of material dealing with a religious subject which was prepared by a different organization, especially a lay group. The first prerogative of the rabbinate is full and unlimited sovereignty in all matters pertaining to halacha and observance. It is below our dignity to serve in the capacity of a mailing agency for any group, regardless of the latter's distinct merits and accomplishments. This principle of the Rav, of the autonomy of faith, applied not only in the confrontation of covenant with majesty, but also applied to the relationships between different religions to each other. Historically, he said, each faith community has developed its own unique way of relating to God, and each must respect the other's integrity. This means that we shouldn't dictate to Christians, for example, what their belief should be, and they shouldn't dictate to us what our belief should be. Um, he said we should work together with other religions Uh, on matters pertaining to the general welfare of mankind, such as combating disease, alleviating human suffering, protecting human rights, helping the needy, etc. However, he said it was pointless, at best, to engage in dialogue on matters of creed. Each faith speaks its own language, and it would be illegitimate for one to request of the other to interpret itself in alien categories. An extension of this position was his strong objection to holding interfaith services. As I said, we should cooperate with other religions on matters relating to human welfare, but not on religious matters. That it makes no sense. Each religion speaks its own language, has its own faith, and has to conduct itself according to its own internal approach. Um, The Rav wrote uh, when when he was asked about interfaith uh, services, he said, We are ready and willing to encourage interfaith projects as long as they are held within the confine of secular activities. No joint worship, however, can be encouraged. We are loyal citizens of our great country and we're committed to all its institutions. However, joint action and common effort are commendable. Hence, uh, joint action is commendable in all areas of mundane endeavor, yet one's relationship to worship of and dialogue with God is an inner experience most intimate, most personal, and most unique. Each community worships God in its singular way. Gleichschaltung, it's a German word which means making things equivalent, this distorts the very essence of the religious experience. And he adds in another place, I'm fully aware of the great American heritage of religious tolerance, and I cherish this ideal with all my heart and soul. However, true tolerance expresses itself not in Gleichschaltung, as in equating two incommensurate systems of values and principles, such as Judaism and Christianity present, but rather in granting the opportunity to all faiths to promote their worldviews and practices within unique historic and theological dimensions, and to thrive in an atmosphere of mutual understanding and respect. Yet while practicing this great virtue, we must be constantly mindful that the very essence of religion expresses itself in individual character and singularity, which cannot be obliterated if religion is not to be stripped of its soul. In an analogous sense, but clearly with much greater fraternity and sense of mutual responsibility, the Rav recommended cooperation with other Jewish denominations uh, in matters relating to Jewish welfare and Jewish survival, uh, the state of Israel, Soviet Jewry, and so on, but not in matters relating to creed or observance. If other uh, groups did not accept the autonomy of Halakha, then there was nothing to discuss it with them in that realm. However, obviously on the level of Amisrael There was much that had to be done together with them. Um, Now, in the state of Israel itself, there was an even greater danger of the encroachment of the state into religious affairs than there was in America, and this subject vexed the Rav greatly. He brought it up frequently in his addresses to the Mizrahi, and in fact, one of the reasons that he did not take up the job of Chief Rabbi of Israel when it was offered to him about in 1960 was he had concluded that the chief rabbinate was not autonomous. It was subject to political pressures and would have to carry out the dictates of political parties, and that he was not willing to accept. And there are many letters in the book relating to his uh, his refusal to accept the position of chief rabbi for that reason. Now, all these actions that I've mentioned so far present the rove in the light of sort of a defender of the faith, but this shouldn't overshadow the fact that he advocated active engagement with society, and he recognized the religious value of Adam one of majestic man's attainments, both sides of engagement with the world and uh, commitment to the covenant had to be maintained without one being allowed to eradicate the other. Just as he urged moderns to remember the covenant, he emphasized that covenantal life did not have to fear engagement with the world. The role of covenantal religion was not to retreat into a corner or to provide majestic man with the validation he seeks. Rather, it was to bring sanctity into all realms of existence, including the cultural realm of Adam I, of Majestic men. For example, regarding the founding of a medical school under the auspices of Yeshiva University, the Rav wrote, The Orthodox community can win the respect of others by focusing on and excelling in three areas. One, living their personal lives on a higher ethical religious level. Two, defending their principles and ideals in a forthright and uncompromising manner. Three, demonstrating to the world that the Torah Jew need not cower in a corner and gaze with sadness and resignation as life in the world passes, pass him by. Similarly, he expressed his affinity with religious Zionism in broad and sweeping terms. It related not just to the state of Israel, but to an entire worldview. He said, For me, Mizrahi is not only a political organization to whom we must gratefully acknowledge its contribution to the building of the land of Israel. It is also an ideological movement with an all-embracing philosophy that is no less relevant for Jewish life in the diaspora. We are not meant to build Noah's Ark. Our prayers are for everyone. It is our desire to purify and sanctify the modern world by means of the eternal vision, constant in its purity and grandeur, expressing the transcendental perspective with and divine calm within the stormy seas of change and metamorphosis that is known as progress. It is our belief that Judaism has the means to give meaning and significance, value, and refinement to the multifaceted existence of modern life. We do not need to fear progress in any area of life, since it is our firm conviction that we have the ability to cope with and to redeem it. I personally subscribe to this outlook with every fiber of my being." End quote. Perhaps the overarching message of the Ruv's public activity as expressed in this book was the need for Orthodox Judaism to have the courage of its convictions. Orthodoxy had no need to fear confronting the challenges and opportunities of the modern world, for he had absolute confidence in the Torah's ability to, as he put it, cope with and redeem all realms of human endeavor. Nor, when confronted with majority groups that held a different viewpoint, did Orthodoxy have to try to ingratiate itself with them or compromise its principles in order to curry favor with them. By setting forth its principles with dignity and with humility, it would only gain respect. This engagement with the outside world would be valid only if orthodoxy maintained sight of its covenantal foundations. If the engagement with the surrounding world could not be conducted while maintaining the integrity of orthodox principles, then there was no need to be afraid of retreating into ourselves for a period of time, as he counseled the head of a rabbinic organization. There was a certain project that they suggested uh, that uh, the RCA participate in, and the Rav answered as follows. This is letter 12, I believe, in the book. I noticed in your letter that you were a bit disturbed about the probability of being left out. Let me tell you that this attitude of fear is is responsible for many commissions and omissions, compromises and fallacies on our our part, which have contributed greatly to the prevailing confusion within the Jewish community and to the loss of our self-esteem, our experience of ourselves as independent entities committed to unique philosophy and way of life. Of course sociability is a basic virtue, and we all hate loneliness and dread the experience of being left alone. Yet at times there is no alternative, and we must courageously face the test. Maimonides of old was aware of such bitter experiences. So, uh, to conclude, I would say that even though the issues that uh, the Rav addresses in this book are issues from 50 years ago, and it could be debated whether under current circumstances he would take the same position, that's a fruitless debate. The point is that we can glean from his approaches to these issues a general, his general values and a general approach to issues. So regardless of what we would say about the specific issues that he addresses here, given that we live in a different time, in a different place, our surrounding culture is different, what matters to us is that we must have, we must try to glean from the sources of halacha the essential positions of Judaism, and maintain them with a sense of dignity and confidence, and not feel the need to weaken the autonomy of our position due to various pressures, we should stick to our positions and present them with the same reason, reasoned approach that he employed. Thank you very much.
0: You have been listening to Havav Rani Tzigler, speaking about the philosophy of Rabbi Yosef Dov Halei V'salavetjech Zechat Sandikli in today's pasha in the beginning we have laws of kahuna, laws applying to a kohen one of them is a pasuk which halakhically is difficult lo lo biv saram lo yisratu their kohanim are enjoined not to do koha, to strip their uh, strip in their hair and not to shave their beards and not to make cuts in their skin. All these three things are forbidden to all Jews, and not only to Kohanim. Uh, making cuts in your skin and, and stripping your hair were customs that were done as avelut, as part of the mourning by non-Jews, and they were forbidden to the Jews to 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 uh, debase their bodies in this manner, and also a, a prohibition on shaving, on shaving with a razor. Uh, so the Torah talks about why it's mentioned for Kohanim as well. It is a comment of the Maral Diskin. The next Pasuk says, Kedoshim Yiyu velo The kohanim should be holy to their God. Now, that, that's true in general. A number of times it says the kohenim are, are holy. What's the connection between that and these three isurim that are mentioned here? Maral Diskin says that the Kedoshim Yiyu him, and they shall be holy, sacred to their God, is the reason why God told them not to cut their hair or strip their hair and not to uh, shave their beards, and not to um, um, make cuts in their skin. He says, what, what's the point? He says, look at the way priests of the non-Jews, who lived in a Christian country, look at the way the priests of the non-Jews, the way they dress, they have special clothing, they have special haircuts. There's a tanshur, which was customary for most of the history of Christianity, a special way of cutting one's hair. From that, the term in Yiddish and in Hebrew has gone out of fashion to refer to a Christian priest as a galach, one who has shaved his has shaved his head. That special way of cutting their hair to indicate that they were priests. So the Midrashim said, "Why is that? Because they wanted people to know that they were priests. They dressed special in order to re- receive the respect and the and the attitude people would 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 would." Honor them and respect them and, and, and view them as being holy people. So they dressed in a special manner, special clothing, special appearances, special haircuts. So God said to the Kohanim "You don't have to change anything. You will be Kadoshim Yuledoi Echem. Your your actions will broadcast holiness. The sacred will shine from your lives." But you shouldn't and you don't need, nor would it be appropriate for you to try to attract the attention to, 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 to shine your holiness by dressing and acting and, and, and taking special haircuts in a special, in a special manner. This is something which I think we, we very often feel certain people, they dress in a special manner in order to indicate that they are spiritually superior. Well, this can said, God told the Kohanim, you look just like everybody else. Don't make funny cuts in your hair, and don't, 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 don't shave your beards off, and don't, don't, don't make marks on your skin. And you can extend that. Don't wear special clothing. Don't, don't act in a special artificial manner to say we are the chosen of God. We are the sacred, separated unto God. Kohanim. Kedoshim yiyu Am." You will be marked as because of the way in which you act, which reflects sanctity and holiness. And that will be the means by which people will recognize and honor and respect you, and not by the artificial marks of clothing, tansher, and the design of one's beard. Today's halachayomit Take a Exception, a timeout from our series on Tefillah, start talking about the man and Birkat Amazon. So we'll give one halacha relating to that. B'chayim Palaji asks again about how Moshe Rabbeinu said to make Birkat Amazon, at least the first B'chayim Birkat Amazon, B'chayim Zan, on man. Pasuk says that the man, Pasuk in B'shalach, says, The flavor of the man was very, very sweet, like, like honey. Khaim says, if your bread is sweet, it's called pata babakissnin. Pata babakissnin is something which is in its ingredients like bread. It's made from grain and water. But, there are a number of different explanations, many different shown them at least three explanations of what the pata means. But one of them is that it's been sweetened. And because it's sweetened, it's dessert and not the main, the main underpinning of a se'uda, like bread. It's not major sustenance, it's, it's a sweet, and if you don't make Bukhata Mazan, you say, you say, Alamichia. So, if Haim Palladji asked, the man was sweet, it was, like, it was like honey. So how could you make Bukhata Mazan? If Haim Palladji's answer is, that you should remember the Halakha, that Patav HaBakistan, you don't make Bukhata Mazon unless Kavas Suda Lehem. In other words, the Halakha of Patav is, not that it's not bread, it is bread. But in order to make Bukhata on bread, it has to be the social function of bread, which is the the main sustenance of the meal that everything else is added to as flavour and, 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 and variety. But dessert, sweets are eaten for their flavour. You don't you don't stuff yourself on them. You don't you don't build up your body on them. It's not it's not the staff of life. And therefore Bakatamazan is for that thing which is sustaining you. But if a person, for whatever reason, chooses to be Koveya Uda Al Pat he establishes his main meal. He bases it on. Pata and the sugar and the honey doesn't prevent bakatamazon. It's the being dessert that prevents bakatamazon, or being a sweet, being a snack. But if it's your main meal, if it's the main part of the meal, then there's no difference between that and this. So the man was the only thing they ate. Obviously, it was kvi Utsuda, And therefore, he says you make bakatamazon on man, despite the fact that it's sweet. So I remind you of the halacha, which is becoming more and more common. Bakatamazon something which is technically of the ingredients of bread. It's flour and water, but it has extra ingredients. So those ingredients say we do not make prekatamazon on them. But that's only true if those ingredients basically change the function of that bread, of that, of that kind of cake, from being the staff of life to being a snack. So that's the reason why you make alamichia uh, on cake. Because it's dessert, it's not, it's not the main course. But if that's not what happens, if the way we eat, for one reason or another, socially, in general, in our society, or a particular decision of yourself, treats this particular uh, um, cake, this baked good, as being, yes, as being the basis of the meal, and not a snack, then you do make peccata mazana net. This takes place in one of two ways. It takes place either because of the amount you eat, according to the Gemara, has, according to what we've shown him in the Gemara, has a particular shi'ur, if you eat three beitzim, three eggs worth, then that's called a suda itself. It's not a snack anymore. The whole thing is a suda. And therefore, let's say you're eating ice. When I was a kid, I used to at night, before I'd go to sleep, I'd read a book, drink apple juice, and finish off a box of chocolate chip cookies. If you finish off a whole box of chocolate chip cookies, that's called a suda. And you have to bake, bench, you have to say, despite the fact that you thought it was only a cookie. It's not a cookie anymore, it's a form of bread. The fact that it has extra flavors, chocolate and sugar, etc., doesn't change for being bread if you, it is being the main part of the suda. Secondly, sometimes, even if you only eat a little bit, but the fact that we've added flavor hasn't really changed, hasn't really changed the nature of it, because socially it's eaten as part of the meal, middle of the meal, and not as a and not as a snack. And uh, just today, the truth is, we have a different attitude towards sugar. We add sugar to almost everything. Uh, so sweetened chalas, for instance. It's a, a customer that The chalot for Shabbat have been sweetened. Some people thought that you cannot make the on them because the pata va'bekistnin. But halacha I think that's incorrect. Since you are korea suda, first of all, you're eating it as the chala for, the, for Shabbat. And two, it doesn't bother us anymore having sugar. It still looks like bread. You treat it as bread. You don't snack on sweetened chalas, you, we eat sweetened bread, that's, that's, by us it's bread, and therefore that's no longer called patababakistan, it's called kviut su'udah, and you have to say bakatamazon on, on, uh, on that kind of bread, on that kind of quotation mark bread, it's called bread al if it forms the, the anchor of the su'udah, kviut su'udah, and is not being treated as a snack that's eaten between, between meals. That's it for today. Wishing you a Shabbat Shalom. Hoping to hear from you, that you should hear from us. Next week we'll be back on Monday with the Shiur the Mitzvah, Hashavuid, the Mitzvah of the Week, with Harav Tavori. And until then, Shabbat Shalom Umborach, Kol Tov. You've been listening to KMTT. Broadcasting from Yeshivat HaRatzion. KMTT is a project of Yeshivat Haaretzion and of the Israel Kashitsky Virtual Beit Midrash. Our website www.kimitzion.org K-I-M-I-T-Z-I-O-N dot O-R-G You've probably been there already if you're listening to this, but give the address to your friends. Bring more people. Into the circle of those who learn Torah every day, getting a she'er from KMTT. Kim Itzion Torah Udvar Hashem